0: fascinating isn't it unity unity is an interesting subject I wonder how united we are as a church how united we are as believers even if you're visiting from another church it doesn't matter how how united are we how united is Christendom yeah I don't know whether you read anything by Max Lucado he's a, a prolific author uh, if you've never read anything about him, very accessible. Uh, he wrote uh, Gentle Thunder, and he tells the following story with his usual wit and panache, okay? So this is, this is a direct quote from this book. Some time ago, I came upon a fellow on a trip who was carrying a Bible. Are you a believer, I asked him. Yes, he said excitedly. I've learnt you can't be too careful. <laughs> Virgin birth, I asked. Mm, I accept it, he replied deity of Jesus, no doubt at all. Death of Christ upon a cross, he died for all people. Could it be that I was face to face with a Christian? Perhaps, nonetheless I continued my checklist. Status of man, sinner in need of grace. Definition of grace, God doing for man what man cannot do for himself. (gasps) Return of Christ. Imminent, Bible-inspired, the church, the body of Christ. I started getting excited. Conservative or liberal? He was getting interested too. Conservative. My heart began to beat faster. Heritage, Southern Congregationist, Holy Son of God, Dispensationist, Triune Convention. <gasps> that was mine. Branch, Premillennial, millennial post-trib, non-charismatic, King James, One Cup Communion. My eyes misted. I had one more question. Is your pulpit wooden or fiberglass? Fiberglass, he responded. I withdrew my hand immediately, stiffened my neck. Heretic, I said, and walked away. Now that's typical of the way Max O'Cardo writes. And I think he's captured something there for us. It's humorous and a bit extreme, but he identifies a common problem. Many of us are quick to divide about just about blinking anything. When I worked for the Baptist Union, I went to churches that are divided, honestly, over the coloury of the crockery. It happens. People in church life fall out over the most mundane stuff. As someone uh, said, to live above, as it says on the screen, with those we love. Oh, how that will be glory. To live below with those we know. That's another story. If you read through the Bible it's filled with a focus on the need for unity, togetherness. I mean, as we saw last week, you remember uh, God's people, every single one of us, we're designed uh, to fit together as pieces in a puzzle. We are all different, and we celebrate our differences. We're not Core to be exactly the same or anything like that. When we're unified, when we're together, that's a beautiful thing because we are all so different. As I said, the Bible is absolutely littered uh, with examples of unity. Here's just some really, really quickly for you uh, Judges 20, verse 11. All the men of Israel got together, united as one man against the city. 2 Chronicles 30. The hand of God is on the people to give them unity of mind to carry out what the king and his officials had ordered. You go to Psalm 133. How good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in. Unity. Jeremiah thirty-two. They uh, they will be my people. I will be their God. I will give them singleness of heart and action, so they'll always fear me for their own good. John ten. I have other sheep that are not of the sheep pen. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock, one shepherd. Acts four thirty-two. All the believers were one. In heart and mind. Romans 15. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement. Give you a spirit of unity amongst yourselves. As you follow Christ Jesus. So that with one heart and mouth. You may glorify God. 1 Corinthians 1. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree with one another. That there may be no divisions among you, and you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. That's, that's what happens again and again and again as you go through the Bible. It just this appeals for unity. But I ask you honestly, are we united? Are we living together with single singleness of heart and mind, as God said to Jeremiah. Are we one in mind? Are we in agreement? They're tough questions. They're tough questions because, let's be honest for a minute, left to our own devices, we don't automatically drift towards unity. Our default setting is disunity. That's the truth. History's Littered with a lack of harmony amongst human beings, isn't it? Look at the political scene in North and South Korea. That's disunity. Same country. Look at North and South Sudan. That's disunity. Look at Scotland, England, and Wales. There's disunity all around us, there's disunity in your workplaces. There's disunity in your families. Some of you sit here tonight, you, you've been divorced, you, you're estranged maybe from a, a child. There's all sorts of disunity in our lives. We're, we're well used to it because it's the default, it's where we tend to go. Even the disciples now remember, they'd been with Jesus, they'd hung around with him for three years. And you read the New Testament, it's there. They should have demonstrated such accord. but flip me, there's discord amongst them. Remember James and John caused envy and jealousy when they wanted to sit at the right hand and left hand of Jesus in his, in his glory? The night before Jesus selflessly gave his life for the redemption of the world, an argument among, arose among those who, frankly, should have known a lot better. And in the final moments before his arrest, you'd, you'd have thought Jesus would have been praying for his own strength. He could have requested that the disciples would come on, support me. His, his prayers could have been filled with a desire to make the disciples better after he'd gone, you know, so they'd be able to teach well and serve well and lead well. But no, what, what occupies Jesus' prayer? Just before he dies. There is one single thought that occupies his prayer. Unity. Unity amongst his followers. So get your pew Bible. It's at the end of your pew. Or maybe you've got a Bible app. Open it up on your phone or your tablet. Whatever you've got. Let's turn to John 17. Because I want to look at this with you this evening. Vera's going to come in a moment to read... John 17 for us. But just as you're turning to John 17, let me set something of the context here for you. Back in chapter 13 of John, Jesus has washed the disciples' feet. And it's a demonstration of servanthood. Here's the Son of God washing feet. And he challenges his disciples he says to them look I've got a new command for you you need to love one another as I have loved you then you move on into chapter 14 and he's, he's comforting his disciples because he's told them that he's going to be leaving he's going to be killed and everything and the, 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 you know it's okay chaps you, you'll join me in heaven one day if you put your faith in me and in the meantime, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit so you're not going to be left alone. Then you move into chapter 15. He reminds them that apart from him, they're going to struggle. So they need to stay close to him. And then chapter 16, he teaches more about the Holy Spirit and the peace that the Holy Spirit is going to bring to their lives. And then here we are. It's on the eve of his crucifixion. And he utters this amazing appeal for unity. So Vera's going to come and read for us from John chapter 17. Thanks, Vera. Bless you.
1: I'm reading from the New International Version. Jesus prays to be glorified. After Jesus said this, he looked toward heaven and prayed. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Jesus prays for his disciples. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you. For I gave them the word you gave me, and they accepted them, they knew with certainty that I came from you and they believed that I sent you. I pray for them, (coughs) I'm not praying for the world but for those you have given me for they are yours. All I have is yours and, oh sorry, all I have is yours and all you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will remain in the world no longer. But they are still in the world and I am coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name. The name you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe. By that name you gave me, none has been lost except the one doomed to destruction, so that scripture could be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I am still in the world, so that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them. For they are not of the world any more than I am of the world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. Jesus prays for all believers. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message that all of them may be one. Mm -hmm. Father, just as you are in me, and I am in you. May they also be in us, so the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them, you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me, and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I want those that you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you. And they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. Thank you, Lord.
0: Thank you, Vera. Have a swig of your water because that's the longest reading I think we've had in a while bless you well done thank you for that so it's an amazing prayer isn't it i don't know when's the last time you really read it i wanted vera to read it all because very often we just take snippets out of it in many ways i guess we'd want to say that's the real lord's prayer because you know that that's the other prayer commonly referred to as the lord you know our father who art in heaven that's like a model prayer, isn't it? Because the disciples say, well, how should we pray? And, and he gives them that model. So that, that's probably more a disciple's prayer or model prayer. This is the Lord's prayer. This is, this is amazing. John 17, you've got the longest recorded prayer that Jesus ever prayed. Now, some scholars, you know, they say, oh, you know, it didn't happen in one sitting. And I think it did. I think this is, this is one solid prayer that is deliberately said out loud for the disciples benefit more than anything. And I just want to look at it with you for a few moments before we go and have a nice cup of tea later on. Is that okay? So let's, let's, if you've got your Bible, keep it open. Let's have a look at this passage. What does this passage tell us? I, I think first of all, I just want to say this. This prayer is long. It's long in two ways. In that it's jesus's most protracted prayer recorded in scripture and it's the longest prayer in scope of time because it extends all the way to today so here's jesus verse 20 my prayer he's talking about the disciples isn't he to god and he's saying my prayers not just for them i pray also for those who will believe in me through their message so here's a comforting thought whether you're a young christian or an older christian Jesus has been praying for you. Here, as he prays this prayer, he has been praying for you and for me. Yay! We really want to thank you, Lord. I pray for those who will believe in me, who will believe in me. That's, that is you and me. And this prayer is also saturated with such urgency. You can almost hear the agonized intensity as Jesus pleads with his Father to make the believers one. Four times he prays that. And the very fact that Jesus prayed for unity indicates that we can't accomplish that on our own. You imagine being there when he prayed this prayer. It must have been quite something to hear him pray it. We need supernatural strength to be united. Look at you. Well, we can't do it by ourselves. So the fact that Jesus has prayed for us to be united is really quite something and something we can't ignore. The request is amplified and there's all sorts of things going on here in this beautiful passage. And I just want to summarize the prayer by saying, if you want to just see three things, here's what Jesus is praying here. He prays for himself, that he can be glorified. He prays for the disciples, that they're protected and sanctified. And finally, he prays for the church, that it's unified. That's what this prayer is doing. So I just want to go verse 11. Have a look at verse 11 in your Bible. Verse 11 Jesus is praying for his disciples. He says, look, I will remain in the world no longer. They're still going to be in the world. I'm coming to you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. So Jesus is about to leave. He knows this, and he knows what's ahead for his followers. He knows that there's going to be persecution we know that there was terrible persecution for the early Christians. They had to endure horrifying things. He knows that in every generation there's going to be persecution. There's going to be temptation. Christians face all sorts of things. He knows that the devil is going to try to work to divide his followers as much as he can. So what does Jesus do here? He prays for protection by appealing to the power of God's name. I find that intriguing. It's easy to miss that in this text. I will remain in the world no longer, but they're still in the world. I'm kind of you. Holy Father, protect them by the power of your name. Now, why is Jesus saying that? When Jesus refers to his Father as Holy Father, I think he's, deliberately wanting to kind of elevate the understanding, particularly the disciples who are listening in, as to who God is in this situation. This This isn't just your dad. This is God. This is Holy Father. This is the Holy Other. This is about God's resources, God's power, God's abilities to protect his people. So it's an amazing thing. When you think that sometimes you and I will pray for people to be protected, we are praying to the God of heaven to be able to do that. So Psalm 79, Help us, O God our Savior, for the glory of your name. I think the psalmist understood it. We should pray the same way as we make our requests for God's glory, the glory of his name. We don't just pray for our creature comforts, do we? Because of who the Father is, Jesus is able to ask him, help them. Stand guard over them. Protect them. Unleash the power of uh, uh, unleash the arsenal of of power and protection that you have over your church. Do you know, I, I honestly believe that's what's happening today. When you think about how the Church of Jesus Christ is suffering in lots of parts of the world where people are being martyred for their faith, it's still happening in the 21st century. Christians are put in prison. They're fed to dogs. They're tortured. They're run over by steamrollers. There are all sorts of horrible, horrible stories, some of them well-publicized, some of them not talked about. Horrifying things that happen to Christians. Yet I do believe That God, by his grace, is protecting people. There are some amazing stories of God's protection. Amazing accounts of how people have been delivered from stuff. I think Jesus has in mind passages like Isaiah 17, verses 8 and 9. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked who assail me, from my mortal enemies who surround me. Holy Father... Protect them. Protect them by the power of your name. That's the thing. Satan's strategy throughout church history has been to destroy unity, particularly in the church. If he can attack our oneness, then our power will be diffused and our message will be, well, obliterated and blurred. So Jesus is praying here, do you notice, for our protection. And that protection that Jesus prays has a very deliberate purpose so that they may be one, as we are one. Do you see it there at the end of the verse? That's very important. In the Greek, it's even more forceful. That's the language that the New Testament was originally written in, and it is that they may be constantly one. It's not they may be one on a particular Sunday in March, or when they're singing a particular song. No, no, constantly one. That's the sense here. Jesus and his Father are one all of the time, in essence, in purpose. And the disciples of Jesus and the church of Christ is called to be united, to be close, to be holy, to be complete continually. And that's a very important thing for us, isn't it? That request is amplified in verse 20. Jesus expands his intercession to include you and me. My prayer isn't for them alone. I pray for those who will believe in me through their message. So Jesus is praying for you and me to be protected, to know the unity that he and his Father know. That's so important. Praying for people who are not yet born. I find that so encouraging. It reminds me of Psalm 22. They'll proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. Do you know Jesus is concerned about his church today? I think sometimes we forget that. I think we act sometimes as if Jesus lived a long, long time ago in a faraway land. And he's not bothered today. Well, he is bothered. We're included in Jesus' request for unity. I think it's awesome. In verses 21 through 23, we see that that request for oneness is made three different times. And it's kind of growing in intensity. If you look at it, you see all of, that all of them may be one, Father, just as you are in me and I'm in you. May they also be us, so that the world may believe that you've sent me. I've given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them, you in me. May they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Notice the word complete there, very important. Comes from the root meaning end or aim. Jesus is praying that our aim, our end game, would be oneness. How united are we? How united is the church of Jesus Christ today? I think there's several other things that jump out from this passage. I think uh, if you look at verse 21, the start of it, uh, that all of them may be one as you and I, uh, you and me, and I and you. Uh, Jesus doesn't just want us to get along with a few people or even with everyone in this church alone. It's very interesting, isn't it? Look at the language. All of them may be one. This prayer is very deep. True Christians are one, no matter what name is written over the church notice board. Do you know, we as Baptists need to understand this, because apparently there are going to be Methodists in heaven, and the danger is, apparently, some Presbyterians are going to make it as well, but we do behave as if we're the elite, and whatever denominational stream, the same would be true in all of them. Those of you who have come from a Pentecostal background, you were no doubt convinced at one time you were the only ones. But there's a depth here that's talking about a unity that's far beyond whatever name is written over the door. In fact, the name written over the door just brings confusion to people. People say to me all the time, well, what's the difference between you lot and them lot? What does it mean? It's so important that we understand a kind of unity we're redeemed by the same blood we're going to the same heaven it means we share a common unity we are a community of faith and that's so important now i don't want you to misunderstand what i'm saying here okay because i know some people think well you know it's just about ecumenical sloppiness then isn't it you know you just be united over anything i'm not saying that the push for ecumenism i don't agree with that I think there are key and fundamental doctrinal differences and biblical distinctions that we just can't be united over. But where we can be united, let's be united. Let's work for the glory of of Christ. Earlier in this same prayer, Jesus established that the way you become more and more like him can only come about based on what's in God's word. Chapter 17, verse 17, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And we're not all headed in the same direction and we don't serve the same God because some of us don't believe certain key things. And I would fall out with people who didn't believe certain key things. I am pretty orthodox in my belief. You know, I do believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, born of a virgin. You know, that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. You know, there, there's some key things that I'm not willing to let go of, and I, I think I can be united with somebody else. It doesn't matter what <coughs> tradition they're from. These things are so important. You might wonder why on earth I'm going on about unity tonight, but as we learned last week, we're, we're all distinct people. We're, we're, we're different parts of a puzzle. We're, a variety is a valuable thing. We have different gifts, we have different abilities, different personalities, thoughts and opinions. We're not all called to be the same. Thank God for that. Imagine another one of you going around the world, let alone more of you. We can have harmony even though we're not homogeneous. We we don't expect everyone to be exactly like us. There's unity in diversity. That's a beautiful thing. The pattern for oneness is linked to the unity within the Trinity. Jesus uses that as an example, doesn't he? In verse 11, Jesus prays that his disciples would experience the oneness that exists in his relationship with the Father. Then in verse 21, he prays, may they also be in us. And in verse 22, that they may be one as we are one. The unity that Jesus wants us to have is so intimate so personal so vital his best example is well just like you and me dad it, it's a oneness not only of faith and hope but, but of life itself that's what he's saying i think paul understood that paul picked up on it in ephesians 4 he said Look, there's one body one spirit you were called to one hope when you were called one lord one faith one baptism one god and father of all who's over all and through all and in all And then this is the crucial thing. If you miss this, you'll miss the whole point, I think, of this prayer. The purpose of this oneness and this unity, which is why it's so important for us, is to accelerate evangelism. Look at the rest of verse 21. So that the world may believe. That's what he says. Why does he want this unity? So that the world may believe. Unity isn't just about making my job easier as a pastor. So people aren't falling out with each other. Whoa, 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 whoa. Unity is all about our mission, our evangelism. We're not just to enjoy unity for our own sakes. God's plan is that the world may believe. But when unity is fractured within a church, the bridge between believers and the world blows up. Churches that are fractious with each other very rarely, if ever, engage in any authentic mission or evangelism. A disunited Christian community denies by its behavior the message it proclaims. And I'm absolutely convinced in my reading of church history that dissension and disunity have hindered more revivals than perhaps we can ever imagine. Lost people aren't looking to be part of an organization that's battling over irrelevant issues why lost people don't care what's happening in the Church of England about things. You know, the synod makes it onto the news and whatever, but people aren't interested. They don't want to be part of that. The practice of oneness puts God's reputation on display. Look at verse 22. I've given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. The word glory there it represents the visible manifestation of God's attributes. It's what we see when we look at him. The New Testament writers understood that. Peter understood it about it when he talked about participating in the divine nature. Paul understood it in 2 Corinthians 3. We who with unfailed ve- unveiled faces reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord. Friends, when we're united... The world will stand up and take notice of God because they'll see him glorified in us. It's what Jesus was on about in Matthew 5 wasn't it? Let let your light shine before people that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Now after listening to what I've said you may still be thinking well fine whatever I just keep my head down and try and get on with everybody and please again don't misunderstand me I'm not saying there's disunity in this church I think this church is wonderfully, wonderfully as one and I praise God for that but we need to pray protection over that we need to hold on to it as a crucial and vital element of what it means to be a Mariah Baptist Church and it needs to challenge us about why we seek to maintain the unity that there is amongst us, it is so that we can do more, evangelism and mission. It is so that we can reach out into this community and be more effective. It is, as we saw this morning, about the kids. But it's also about the old and the middle-aged. It's for every generation. Because unless we remain united and preserve that unity, our message will be counted for nothing. You may wonder if this is ever possible. Can there be proper unity? Well, I think there can. I think it's amazing after uh, Jesus died and went back to heaven, there was extravagant oneness in the early church. I see that in Acts 4. It says that the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. They shared everything they had. Now, the early church had its fair share of problems. But there was a oneness there. There was a unity there. And that had eternal impact on the lives of the lost. It's recorded for us by Dr. Luke in Acts 2, because people were being, becoming Christians every day. So as I finish, I just want to challenge you. What can you and I do personally to foster this unity, maintain the unity that we enjoy, and have greater unity, perhaps, with other Christians as it becomes possible? Well, I think it starts with you and me. And it starts with you and me and our personal walk with Jesus. Because you can't be united with something that's not the same as you in that sense if there isn't a oneness in your heart. You can be united with people who perhaps see things differently, different church traditions or whatever, but there needs to be a basic unity. They say sometimes that their absence makes the heart grow fonder. I know that certainly happens if I'm away from Sarah. Can't wait to be back. Wait don't know whether she feels the same about me, but whatever. But I think in our relationship with God, it doesn't work like that. Because I'll be honest with you, I don't know whether you can identify with this, I think absence makes the heart wander. The further I am away from God, I wander. The less time I spend with him, the more prone to wander I am. So I think we need to seek God. Seek God personally. If you find yourself out of sync with somebody, if you have a fractured relationship with somebody in your family, or if there is a tension in a relationship here at Moriah, I say this to you now, and those of you who've ever come to me about stuff like this, you know this is the way I operate. I think you need to ask yourself, first and foremost, how's your relationship with Jesus? If you're finding it difficult to get on with somebody at work, a colleague maybe, Start with yourself. How is my walk with Jesus? Am I fully surrendered to him right now? If there's tensions in your marriage, start there. How are things between me and Jesus? I think then you can go on, secondly, to actively seek peace and unity. I think so often, I don't, again, maybe this is just me, I am good at pronouncing judgments and gossiping and slandering other people because they miffed me off and blah, 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 blah. I think we should actively pursue peace and unity. Proverbs 6 says, The Lord finds detestable a man who stirs up dissension amongst brothers. Why don't we just stop being abrasive? Why don't we just cut each other some slack? That would be an interesting one, wouldn't it? There's an old Chinese proverb which I love. Do not remove a fly from your friend's forehead with a hatchet. the way we overreact sometimes, don't we? Somebody says something, my gosh. Let's just cut people some slack. Let's pull back a bit. I think we need to, thirdly, be a forgiver. Some of us are filled with bitterness because we've refused to forgive somebody for something. Somebody has said something to us that's wound us up in the past and I think it's time to repair relationships, whether in in your own home or at work or in the house of God. Keep short accounts with people. Be like the young child who was overheard reciting the prayer given to the disciples. And forgive us our trash passes as we forgive those who've passed trash against us. I love that. That's it, isn't it? Are you passing around trash? Because we do it. Talk badly about people. Final thing is this. Keep going. Keep going. I love what Paul says in Ephesians 4. It's absolutely brilliant. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. It takes effort. can't be nonchalant about unity. The unity we enjoy as a church is absolutely fantastic, but we're going to have to keep working at it. Let's pray that God preserves that, protects that. So let's Try and do that this week. Let's try actively to seek God personally about unity. I just pray that God will use that as a way for us to reach out to this community so that people will see young and old, rich and poor, working, unemployed, retired, male, female, doesn't matter. We're one. And when we're doing stuff in this community, they can see that and it will prompt them to want to know more, to engage with us, and ultimately, of course, to surrender themselves to Jesus. Wouldn't that be awesome? That's what it's about.